we're on this like cycle where we kind of fall, fall in line with the World Cup and presidential elections and the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. We always aim to like make it just like two or three years and then it ends up being four. Life gets in the way at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, you got to wait till the songs are ready. You know, you can't, you can't pick them before they're ripe. And then there's always this moment where we deliver the album and we're so excited and they're like, great, we'll release it in eight months. And you know, like I could release this tomorrow. I could just put it on the internet and then it would be done. It would be released, but that's really not not how it works we're still on record labels and they still like lots of setup time I mean, you were talking about sort of like you know the dwindling of the dinosaurs before i mean it does seem like things are eventually heading in that direction yeah i don't know if we're stuck in some kind of record label mode even the fact that we just put out albums of mm -hmm. like a 10 songs or whatever feels outdated. It's just weird for us to think of it any other way because that's what we grew up with. That's what we've always done. But uh, maybe in the future, as we, if we write a great song, we'll just be like, oh man, we got to record this and release it. And maybe that'll happen. Maybe we'll move to modern times. Do you think that's just how you, you're wired at this point to understand music in the form of an album? Yeah, I'm definitely wired that way. It also um, is such that when we get together and choose a producer and choose a studio, we're going to like, you know, record all the good songs that we have. So it just comes in natural batches like that anyway. Yeah, it's not how some people do it. They like keep content flowing mm -hmm. to their bases. And uh, we're, we're open to whatever. We just hope the next batch of songs is um, also very inspired. That's the main thing. It's like any other job from the standpoint of, like, you have to start approaching it like a job at a certain point. And when it makes the shift from being something fun that you're doing in your spare time to being not only yourself but children and family members that you're supporting with it, you do have to take it more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, even when we were right out of college and driving around in a van, we took it extremely seriously. You know, now with kids, you have to find a way to, like, be home half the year and balance your touring and creativity and income and your how your spouse feels. So there's a lot more factors, and it's different. But we've always kind of been business-minded, and, mm -hmm. you know, when it's come to writing music, we just kind of leave it all out on the floor and that's just been our operation you know every live show feels like it's super important to us whether there's 2,000 people there or 200 people there I wonder if that's helpful too thinking about things in terms of album cycles and really sort of separating those things out you know making sure that you have your personal life and your your work life and keeping the two of them apart that probably does keep it exciting when it comes time to like either get in the studio and record or you know get in the bus and tour yeah, we uh we all have kids in our band. So we get on Not actually in the bands, but all the band members have kids. <laughs> all the band members have kids. You haven't, you haven't done a like a partridge family well, thing yet? We have done that and we should talk about that as well. Not recommended. Yeah, we're all going through the same thing. We're parents and we're traveling musicians and uh we all strike the balance, but there is a moment when we get on that bus with each other where more than ever, we're like, thank God we have this. <laughs> this is more <laughs> valuable to us than ever because tomorrow I'm going to sleep past 6 a.m. Uh, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll wake up at 6 a.m. and I'll just have uh, some hours to myself. It's like very valuable time for us as individuals and, you know, 
as a band that likes to feel the rewards of what we do. You know, being on the road, you have people clapping for you and telling you they like your songs and that you're good at your instrument. And it's really important to have that in my life, you know. Do you feel like there are elements that you need to introduce in order to keep that level of of excitement going or is it is it just yeah it doesn't it doesn't just happen yeah. naturally forever you know people ask us a lot about our longevity which is you know striking and maybe um a lot of people wouldn't have expected it from us but uh, for us we've always felt like we had something to prove and the trajectory of our music is pretty exciting and it's it's exciting because every time we get in the room we want to reinvent ourselves we want to we want to make a classic album while also like uncovering new ground. And I don't know where exactly that comes from, but it will be no different next time. There's nobody that's just going through the motions of writing. There's like a serious drive to prove ourselves and it happens every time. And our fans, uh, for the most part come with us. So, uh, yeah, we're very fortunate to be like, you know, creatively engaged, uh, in a process that's, you know, we think getting, more and more exciting. Something approved is an interesting way to put it. You know, it almost sounds like you had a chip on your shoulder or something at some point as though there was some source of doubt. Yeah. I, I, you know, chip on the shoulder might be a strong way of putting it, but Guster has seen a lot of our opening bands go on to mm. great fame and fortune in Grammys while we've had a nice steady course and a loyal fan base and have made a, a decent living. It's not a chip on our sh- on my shoulder about it because I can see the difference between their music and ours and I know where we had our opportunities and where we may have done this right or that wrong. But I think when you're in your 40s, it makes sense to reflect on that stuff uh, and be grateful. That's where my head is now and you know, having having a drive and having something to prove is really useful because the other version of that is to be complacent and we've seen it in a lot of our peers to be honest. And a lot of people who achieved a degree of fame and whose new music doesn't move me, that seems to be the norm. And so another thing to be grateful about is that I feel like we're in a different place. Obviously, there's no one recipe for popular success, but it does seem like there are a few things that you can kind of point to. I mean, with us, we had a career that involved a moment where we almost rebuked our early sound. And so we all learned new instruments. And when we first picked up the new instruments, we weren't very good at them. So I was playing a drum set in front of large audiences who, A, didn't want me to be playing that drum set. (laughs) B, were watching me struggle on it. That's almost like a combative approach, right? it, it It was hard. The feedback was always like, you know, go back to the bongos. But, you know, we felt a different musical kind of energy behind it. And we were excited by that. And, you know, as writers and creators and artists, you have to just go where you're excited. So that's what we did. And, you know, I feel like on this last album, we actually like broke through a wall of now there's all these new possibilities in front of us. So yeah, we're, uh, I say the word vector and the word trajectory a Mm. lot. I need like a third word that means the same thing that I can throw in. So I'm not repeating myself as much. Arc. It's like this idea of like parallel universes, right? Like every decision that you make opens up an entirely different path. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like that. And, uh, you know, if we ever stumble upon the same idea in, in writing, it's like, oh, this kind of sounds like something we've done before. It's rejected. And 
and we move on to the next thing. Or we reinvent it entirely and maybe keep the melody or an aspect of the groove or whatever, but there's no repeating ourselves. Were you stuck in a rut at the time and you felt like you needed need to do something drastic? Well, the time was right around the millennium. We had just released Lost and Gone Forever, which was, you know, people consider our seminal album where we actually achieved an album with just guitars and hand drums and voices, you know, for the most part. After struggling on our first two albums to capture our, a certain sound, Steve Lillywhite helped us really capture it. And things started happening for us, and we felt very satisfied. And then we got in the room to write new music, and nobody wanted to do it again. So we, we burnt down that temple, and we picked up keyboards and bass and drum set. And we spent a long time learning them and struggling on them and writing songs that felt very different but keep it together which is a transitional album that came out in 2003 is also a lot of people's favorite guster records so maybe not right at the moment it was released when it was shocking to people but um yeah in, it's in a hindsight it's it's a yeah people like it this is something i think about quite a bit as it pertains to my own career is where the line is between reinvention and challenging yourself and like self-sabotage it's certainly if you go in either direction it, it can be it can be a bit of a downfall yeah i i think i think that's true i mean we have enough checks and balances mm. that some sort of self-sabotage is unlikely but we're definitely have we have moments where we've overstepped and that's natural you're going to go down some roads to realize oh i don't ever need to go down that road again or to realize that it opens up a new door i mean i think i think the production on hard times from our new album is a bit harsh like it it, it sounds harsh uh to me and i wouldn't choose that again but um we were working with a producer who liked cold sounds and he got me into the idea of challenging cold sounds uh and we we're also going in the moment with you know song we wrote in soundcheck while we were in the middle of recording that album and you know luke taking a lindrum and running it through an amplifier and us miking it and just kind of distorting it and blaring it out and just you, know, you have to go with the flow and you can reflect later but in that moment we created a kind of harsh uh dirty song that sounded nothing like Custer's ever sounded like before and so we made a beautiful little acoustic version to go with it <laughs> so forgive my production ignorance but when you say cold sound you mean just like being like the antithesis of something that's warm what, what is it yeah uh so is, is, for instance we always leaned on acoustic guitars and like uh, a mellotron flute sound mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. that's vintage and beatlesy and that was always good something like full and yeah yeah and it would sound uh like a warm cocoon of vinyl yeah. and for many albums that satisfied us and leo abrams who we worked with was more inspired by sounds that challenged him and so he found a certain keyboard that had these kind of Janet Jackson floppy disks that were like <laughs> just really kind of abrasive keyboards. But when you put it together with our songs and then you kind of move back and forth between the worlds, suddenly the, the whole sound of the piece you've created is more dynamic and more engaging. And for the most part on the album Look Alive, it's a big success. Yeah, I mean, the cold sounds you could compare to, like, the way Hard Time sounds like uh, Depeche Mode mm. or Nine Inch Nails or something. Not quite industrial, but sort of approaching that 
sort of idea. Sure, yeah. Some challenging keyboard sounds are, are all over the record. Something I'm sure that you get asked a lot in terms of longevity is, you know, really just having the, the same core group of people. There's some very clear immediate upsides to to working with the same people. But, uh, you know, the, the the one thing that springs to mind as being a potential downside is maybe not having as much opportunity to kind of inject new lifeblood into it. But it sounds like what you're getting at in a way is a producer is kind of an opportunity to do that, right? I mean, it's almost like it's almost having like a rotating additional band member. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We treat the producer choice seriously and we find someone who's going to compliment us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we did with Leo. And before that, Richard Swift, who was someone uh, who's passed away now, but we uh, we really wanted his sound and his perspective. He's like a musical encyclopedia, but they're a very different type of producers. So every Guster album sounds completely different because we're you know, collaborating with a producer who comes from a different angle. But for the most part, as far as writing songs go, we wrote four albums, just me and Ryan and Adam. And then Joe is in the band. So we wrote Gangin' Up on the Sun and Easy Wonderful with Joe. And he took us in all these new places. Mm. And then we've written two albums since Joe left the band with Luke. And Luke is making a huge impression on what we write. He plays differently. He has different influences and throws out melodies as well. And contributes to lyrics and is a huge part of it. So having the fourth Guster uh, be someone that's exciting and fresh uh, really helps evolve our sound too. Do you think it's the possibility still there of doing another drastic teardown in the same way? When you're first starting a band, everything happens really quickly. I mean, just like life in general, it's like being in your 20s, all all that happens. But oh my God, it's been, you know, (laughs) it's been nearly 20 years at this point, but you feel like there's been enough you guys have been able to keep things fresh enough that you don't need to necessarily take such a drastic step. I feel like every album since Keep It Together really, yeah. has felt like that to us. I mean, there's probably many, many places to push ourselves, like, uh, and we will probably will. Every album since 2003 has kind of landed on our fans with a bit of a shell shock. And now they, they should be prepared for it. But, uh, we don't feel any allegiance to any certain sound. Only the one rule that melody is really necessary and is kind of the king of our songwriting. Sonically, though, we're always looking for new places to go, and there will be more teardowns. Sorry, fans. It seems like you guys are, and, and perhaps, again, this is another nice byproduct of having worked together for so long that you don't have to make um, necessarily a concerted effort in that same way in order to do something drastically different that when three or four years elapses between albums and you guys come together somehow by nature of what you are as a band things are going to be dramatically different yeah for some reason uh we get together and uh we've all been listening to different music whether it's new or old Nobody just wants to repeat themselves. Yeah. So, so we end up going in new directions and pushing ourselves in different directions. And yeah, hopefully we'll start writing in the next few months and, uh, see what, see what comes of it. I guess that's sort of the ideal that you want out of a really close friend is somebody who you're comfortable around, but at the same time is completely willing to call you on your bullshit. Yeah. That's a, that's a good direction for this conversation to go, which is that. The relationships between the band members have a tremendous amount to do with the music that you create and how free you feel in the room. Uh, and if you're 
playing and you're worried that the leader of the band is going to micromanage you and say, you can't do this, you can do that, but you can't do this. You're not going to uncover new territory the same way uh, you would if you were feeling completely free and liberated and able to express every idea, good and bad. And with our band, we have a pretty good understanding of that and we give each other space and then we you know we edit it and we refine each other and we pull each other in as necessary you know we can get high and jam and uh go really really bizarre places together i mean really bizarre our our new album has a guy rapping an english accent on it i mean (laughs) we go we can go further than that even is that actually like a byproduct of a a high idea in that way that was sober okay it was a sober decision. I mean, it, it just, does sound like if you told me that was something you guys were like stoned after Groids, you're like, you know what this needs? Guy rapping on English accent. Yeah. I would 100% believe you. I mean, we were playing that verse beat uh, with those chords, and I think Luke was rapping in like a really like thick English accent, and then Ryan refined it into something that had a subtle melody and was more like a madness song. And uh, when it came time to record it, we had to look in the mirror and think, are we going to actually do this in a fake British accent? <laughs> are we allowed to order the rules? Unfortunately, we had a British yeah. producer who, yeah. uh, who said, yeah, you can do that. Coached every inflection of every word. And I, I don't know. What, what are the rules on fake accents? I think you're like in a, in a nice place now where you have that kind of freedom where you can put something on record. You can have an idea, you can put it on record, and, and if it doesn't work, you scrap it. It's not necessarily the, the end of the world, but, but it sounds like part of changing radically from album to album is is opening yourself up to those possibilities. Yeah, I think so. I think there was one like message that came in. We read a lot of our social media. It was like, I love you guys. Most bands would have recorded that song overexcited and made it their hidden track, but you guys just <laughs> threw it right in the middle of your album. And I was like, what? Most bands would have hidden that song. <laughs> it was always my instinct to feature it. I talked to a lot of bands, and some will tell me that the the secret to their longevity is almost running things like a you know a, a dictatorship from the standpoint of like having somebody who it's like they're very clearly the leader and whatever that entails. At least from the outside, it doesn't seem like you guys necessarily have taken that approach. You know, maybe everybody has relatively defined roles but it almost seems like a collective in some ways you were a democracy and there's not a lot of us <laughs> this especially at not coming into their 28th year yeah. who are a surviving democracy our relationships have evolved and our communication has uh gotten better and we've matured as people so i also feel like as a band we've done our 10,000 hours which is to say like we know each other we know if we set the conditions correctly, we'll get in a room and music will come out of us and some good ideas will be there and we'll find them. Yeah. You know, like whether it's Adam playing the role of archivist, who's like, hey guys, a year ago in our jam, I knew we had this one idea that we'd looked over and here it is. I just found it. And then we'll bring it back up and be like, oh, right, that was good. Everyone plays a role in getting the music over the finish line. And so we're a democracy. Nobody's vote is stronger than anyone else's, but the most important thing is when someone feels strongly about something, you listen to them. You try to hear what they're saying. Even if you don't agree, you at least validate it. And we're 45 years old right now. And the days when we would fire off an angry email based on ego or something mm. like that are behind us. We're, we're approaching a more mature place. And this is where bands get complacent normally. Yeah. You know? 
because it's that ego that drives greatness often. But I think, I, I personally think that we're more free in the room because we like each other and, and the relationships are strong. I mean, I have to imagine like one, one of the tough things about having done so many interviews for so long and having been a band together is being asked to like put some of these things underneath a microscope where it's like, if things are working, you don't necessarily want to overexamine them. Right. Well, for me as I spent a lot of the interviews wishing I was answering the questions and watching Ryan answer them in ways that I wouldn't. It's refreshing and awesome. Uh, uh, and I'm going to start a podcast based on the last 20 minutes. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, we don't overexamine them as a band. It was a revelation for me to realize in the last writing process. You know, I go in every time. I'm like, well, maybe this is the time when the ideas don't come. And maybe this will be the time it dries up. Because we've had a, a great run. And I think we've made solid album after solid album since 1999 and i don't want to jinx anything but then i actually like think about it and i i do think that the relationships have a lot to do with us wanting to go in there and wanting to create together and wanting to do the hard work and wanting to listen to each other and you know and wanting to keep guster going so for now it's still strong and uh i i I feel like we're leaving a legacy of music that we'll be proud of. I like friends who you've known for a really long time. Even though you feel like you know them really well, it still boggles your mind trying to figure out how their brain operates. And it sounds like that's a really, that's a case of that, this idea of being like an archivist of, you know, that you guys could have played together in a room and he can just pull one idea. And that's, I think, one of the things that can make it a functioning democracy is like, is it everybody brings distinctly different skills to the table yeah and everyone's roles have evolved so if if i'm going through some old jam session maybe i'm just looking for a way to contribute when i feel like i wanted to contribute more last time yeah. or whatever it is it's just the way the equilibrium of guster happens when you're having these conversations and it's like all right well we're kind of we're approaching like year three or four since the last record you guys are spread out. You're here in New York, and you guys are from, as a band, from Somerville, Massachusetts area originally. Yeah, we're all spread out. We're in different states. Yeah, that's got to be a whole process, right? Yeah, and it's not like three years have gone by. We It's usually one year mm. of touring, and then we start writing. Yeah. But the writing takes a year or two because we only get together a couple days a month or, okay. you know, before this show or that show, we'll do a day. And writing songs takes a long time for us. It's not like we have, oh, we wrote 40 songs and we'll put the best 10 on there. It's like, no, we, we wrote 12 and yeah. we worked really hard on them. But it sounds like you can apply the we to all the songs generally. I mean, it's not really a case of somebody coming in and being like, all right, here it is, everybody, you play your part. Yeah. No, we, uh, we we sweat it out in a room um, and the melodies come and if someone takes the idea home and furthers it along that's great it doesn't always happen that way it's um it's often the genesis and and the rest of it is in the room except for lyrics which we do on emails between me mm -hmm. and Ryan uh, right before we sing them this time they're all Ryan lyrics you know and we go back and forth and just do some checks and balances and that's the hardest part it's really hard to put lyrics on a song you may have written a year and a half ago because generally whatever comes out of your mouth, the moment you think of the melody is what sticks to it. And if you replace that, you're going to feel forced and contrived. And so often right before we sing the lyrics, we get into a bit of a lyrical place. That's got to be the most nerve-wracking part of the process. I mean, that, that must be pretty it's commitment. But, it's, isn't, but isn't that the part of the process where it feels like, you know, getting back to this idea of maybe this isn't time when it 
this is the time when things won't come. Like when you're like, oh shit, we got to be in this studio recording this right now. That's got to be a time when it's most nerve wracking. I mean, that's just classic procrastination. Sure. I mean, it's worked, obviously. It's worked well enough. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not going to uh, have the lyrics wrapped up and tidy and in a package in advance. We're not going to do the hard work until the deadline is there. It's just fact. And so, yeah, but... You know, even being in the studio recording Look Alive, the song, my favorite lyric is the bridge. The hero enters the frame. He's memorized his lines. Hollow words from the front of the stage echo for miles and miles. Literally wrote that while singing the vocal, like, uh, because we had just added a bridge uh, a few days earlier, and then we needed lyrics for it. And it's you know, it just came in the moment. Your brain is more focused. It's crunch time. It's like your brain's ready to receive. And so it it does work like that. As listeners, generally, the lyrics are, are like the first thing to hit you. They're the things that are kind of in a way most easy to absorb because they're like they're tangible. When you've been batting a song around for, you know, a year at this point and then the lyrics are coming last minute, does that or can that radically alter the song or, or your relationship to the song? Yeah. It's hard because you get stuck in a groove. You're attached to this fake lyric that yeah. existed on it. or but You're attached to almost like the feeling of the words yes. and not the meaning. Yeah, and often that lyric that comes at the moment of Genesis is what sticks on the album. You know, don't mm-hmm. go. That just came out of our mouths. Yeah. And then we had to figure out a way to make that less of a lame lyric. You don't go making something out of nothing. And that took a while. But it's hard. It's hard to get your head around it. You're like, oh, well, this doesn't sound as good, but am I just used to the old version? Our history is littered with moments where I insisted on a lyric, <laughs> and, and now I realize I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, and and so on. I hate to put you on the spot, but are there any you can think of that are just like, oh, I can't believe that that, that oh, I fought God. for that. Yeah, our song Hang On, which yeah. is one of our best songs. It was Hang On, Suzanne, had the name Suzanne in there. And I like that. And Ryan changed it to Hang On, Hang On. And I thought that was so cheesy and I was so mad and I insisted he was making a mistake. And now I think Hang On, Suzanne is cheesy. So... There's so, a little sorry, Leonard, right. a little Leonard Cohen in there. It sounds like right. You know, I mean, you it's can't... pretty Leonard Cohen-y melody too. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of reasons why that name came out there. It was more of a band melody, but yeah. It's impossible to completely divorce yourself of of your influences, but you don't want it to like in hindsight feel like a pretty straight lift. Yeah, like for instance, overexcited sounds like it was you know influenced by our house by Madness, and sure we love that song and probably had it in mind, but. It's more a spirit that's similar between the two. It's not a melody or a chord progression or a groove or anything that's lifted. It's just kind of got that attitude to it. And that, to me, is a really healthy way to uh, lift something. We wrote a song called Come On, and after we released it, someone, someone, a lot of people were like, you know, that sounds a lot like this one Jackson Brown song. I don't even remember what the name of it was because uh-huh. none of us have ever listened to Jackson Brown. So we're like, well, that's... Just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. It's funny the way, as we get older, the way we return to certain pieces of music. I do very much have a, a soft spot in my heart for like Madness and all of those two-tone ska bands, but it's not necessarily something that it would have, you know, maybe occurred to you like God, 30 or 40 years ago, however long that was, that that, that was something that in 2017, 2018, 2019, that like would continue to influence what you were doing. But it's so worthy. Yeah. It's uh, it's an all-timer for sure. Sure. And remains to be seen how history will treat uh, our music yeah. or any of the music that we're hearing today. But uh, if it sticks with you, 
it's got value. I mean, we just unearthed this song from the 70s by this artist named Lobby Seafray, and we're going to release a version of it. We've been covering it lately. I can't believe how good the song is. It's yeah. called, it's got a title that no one can remember called like Crying, Loving, Living, Laughing, or maybe not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> All of those words yeah. are involved in some yeah. way, shape, or form. Yeah, there's just so many songs that uh, didn't really get their moment that are worthy that's a cool role to take on in a way it's it's curatorial maybe in a sense being in a band is curatorial generally in that you're taking all these disparate people and disparate parts and attempting to create a cohesive product out of it but this is a very direct form of that of like hey here's this really cool song and we want to share it with the people who like our music yeah i mean that that was uh it's kind of just like a a sweet discovery that fit well with the way we play our instruments. You know, there are, there are people who, you know, do music licensing and supervising whose job it is to be amazing curators and archivists and to find songs. I mean, I remember when like the Rushmore soundtrack came out and all those Wes Anderson movies came out, that dude, Randall Poster, is that his name? Randall Poster? He was finding songs by the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and Van Morrison that you didn't even know and that were incredible and as in addition to bands that you hadn't heard of but also even the ones that you had heard of and and like wes anderson's movies are particularly good at this you know i think it's something that like tarantino is really good at too is like even if you have heard the song the context is completely different and it, and it shows you like how important the broader context of a piece of art is when it comes to music yeah i uh i mean i was really i mean you can look what's that song by the faces uh I wish that I knew oh, what I knew. That la, was, la, yeah, la, la, yeah. Uh, the you know the last scene in Rushmore. Yeah. I mean, that song makes is a major player in that mm-hmm. that movie, and it works so well. <laughs> you know, and a couple of years later, we wrote our song "Jesus on the Radio," which is highly influenced by that yeah. song. When you're not watching the movie, that song has had a new impact on your life. I don't know. There's like a piece of it you take with you every time you listen to it. There's a piece of that kind of ambiance or the mood or whatever it was that the director was developing that continues to live on beyond the movie itself. Yeah. Well, that's where film and music work so well together. I wish our songs were in more artistic moments of film, but uh, the ones where we, we have been in movies are are fun. We're in the Wedding Crashers scene where one of the guys, either Will Ferrell or um, who's the other guy? Oh, not Vince Vaughn. Owen Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. yeah. One of them starts crashing weddings on their own <laughs> yeah. without the yeah, other yeah, yeah. one. And that's when they play I Hope Tomorrow is Like Today by yeah. Guster. And uh, they play our song Rainy Day in the scene where the teenage boy goes down on a guy for money in a BMW. That's good. Take that image with us. The flip side of that, or not even the flip side, like directly related to that is is the idea of like you create this piece of art, obviously like holds this special place to you where you were when you were recording it and all these other things. But you know that once it's on record, it, it belongs to the world. You can't. Yeah. I mean, we could say no to the movie or whatever, sure. but we were super psyched. Uh, we're always psyched to get our music exposed to more people. And that, that song actually worked in that context of that scene. But yeah, when you release something in the world, uh, it's a bold thing to do. It's brave. You're going to subject yourself to criticism and you're going to not control how people react to it or who hears it or any of these things. Uh, so, you know, just got to create it, do your best, feel good about it and set it free. Do you feel like you have a continued relation to the songs once they're kind of like out in the world? I don't really listen to them. Sure. And we play them live. 
Uh, if, if I went back to the recordings, I would only scrutinize them. I'd be like, oh, we play this one better live now, now that we've worked it in, or I might hear a regrettable production idea. That's what my brain would do. It's perpetual workshopping, right? Yeah, it's it's not a great affliction, no. <laughs> to be honest. Everybody's a probably likely a perfectionist to a certain point. If you, if you love something, set it free. Yeah, I mean, there are times where I'll hear our song, and I'll be like, yeah, crushed it, but... More often than not, I'll hear something I would have done differently. And so, yeah, so my editorial brain and my judgmental brain is valuable in the recording process, you know, being a co-producer and how always has been. You know, some people are more inclined to listen critically. Yeah. And, and that's just been my role. So the album's been out for, for a few months. You know, there were, there were all of the months leading up to it when it had already been finished and you're waiting for like all of the record label stuff to finish and get it out into the world. So for this latest record as a, the most recent example, what is your relationship to those songs right now? Uh, I'm ex- right now I'm still in a place where I'm extremely proud. It, it feels really good. Prolonged honeymoon. Yeah. And, and now I'm just like trying to get as many ears on it as possible. Yeah, Overexcited has been on the radio and that's great, but that's kind of like the novelty song in the middle of a pretty serious album. Yeah. So I want to make sure that people recognize the songs that we wrote because, and not just, you know, our hardcore fans. I want to get it out on as many ears as possible. So that's why I'm on this podcast today, Brian. This is something I've like tried to get better at in my life. When somebody compliments me on something and I'm like, that wasn't my best thing. That's not the thing I was most proud of is trying to get better at like taking a fucking compliment, you know, where you're at isn't, you're not like, you know, like it's not in the same way that you would have been like a, a one hit wonder in the eighties, something like that, where they're just like, that's the song. Like that's the song that I'm going to be famous for, for the rest of time. You know, you call it a novelty song, but uh, I mean, you're still as proud of it, right? Yeah, uh, That was over, that was overly stated for dramatic effect. Sure. There's uh it's, it's not a pure novelty song, but relative to the rest of the record, it strikes people that way. Taking a compliment is good. That's part of I mean, you're not as old as I am, but I think you either age in an angry direction or a great, yeah. grateful direction. And I think that's something that everyone needs to work on. It doesn't just come naturally. You actually have to, you know, look within and involve some self-care and have perspective and accept the compliment uh, or, and, and be grateful. At what point in this process is it clear that like that's going to be the song that's played on the radio? <laughs> they they choose that before the album's even released. Yeah. Um, and we went through a few iterations. You know, Hard Times was the first song that was released, but it wasn't a proper single. And the song Terrified uh, has, a, has a massive anthemic uh, chorus lyric. Uh, and everyone's like, well, that could be a big song, but it doesn't quite work on radio and then overexcited was the catchiest of all the songs so went with that and i remember telling our producer yeah overexcited it's going to be the first single and he was like wow really (laughs) (laughs) good place to close and i think is to, to tell me a little bit more about this partridge family situation you've got going on oh right so on two occasions we have decided to do what is called a family bus where we rent a second tour bus and fill it with all the children, all the spouses, and a couple of nannies. And uh, for a week or so, uh, go through the country with the children on sleeping in bus bunks, being with us all day. It's a weird violation of what is uh, sacred on the road. <laughs> <laughs> it is... Uh, 
an interesting thing. I think the band members all hold their breath until it's over, uh, to be honest. But at the same time, I can look at the photos of it and I can talk to my kids about it and they just can't wait. When can we go back on the tour yeah. bus? They get to see what we do. They get to act- have an actual visceral feeling of what it's like to be on the road. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that's great. You know, if, if waking up at six to pour bowls of Cheerios is not ideal. I am grateful that we had them out on the road with us. This is the Guster version of Take Your Kids to Work Day, basically? Yeah, totally. Is it going to happen again, do you think? We're talking about it this summer. Yeah. You know, it, my daughter is 11 and goes away to camp all summer, and she would be heartbroken to miss out on the family bus. So, you know, life might get in the way, but uh, having the kids at the shows and having the kids hang out with each other is really special. Are the kids musically inclined at all? Mine are not. Uh, you know, ukulele lessons here sure. or there. I got one son who's got perfect pitch, which I don't know where he got that from. And I don't know about the other guys. I know Ryan's daughter, Leo, plays harp, can sing back melodies from obscure records. Mm. So she seems pretty musical. For me, the lesson is you come to your instrument, you come to music yourself. You don't come to it because uh, you were forced to play a lesson. That's always the wrong way to find joy in music. So if if one day they discover it, the instruments are there, that'll be great. It'll be great benefit to their lives, but I'm not going to I'm not going to push it on. There you go. That was Brian Rosenworcel of Guster. The last time we spoke was actually the full band and in a very loud and crowded bar, the sadly now defunct Grassroots in Manhattan. Glad we had an opportunity to catch up in a far more quiet setting. Guster's new record, Look Alive, is out now. Thanks so much to Brian. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes. We're on Google Podcasts and Spotify now. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. If you have any feedback, it's rolcast at g email.com and that's about all we got for now so stick around because we're gonna be back real soon with another episode of riyl 